0: Israel's elections end with no clear winner, President Trump receives support from a feisty Corey Lewandowski, and the woke scolds come for Joe Biden and comedy. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Absolute chaos in this Israeli election. I will bring you the results and I will explain how those results work. I am familiar with the system over there. We'll get to that in just one second. But first, Saudi oil fields are under attack, increasing geopolitical insecurity, skyrocketing national debt. It is the perfect storm for the rally in gold right this instant. Is there any gold protecting your portfolio and retirement savings? Can you afford another hit to your retirement? Like the last downturn when the S&P dropped 50%, you should have some precious metals in your portfolio. Diversify, make sure that you are not at the whim of the rest of the world's events or central banks in various countries around the globe. Hedge against inflation, hedge against uncertainty and instability with precious metals. The folks I use, are the folks over at Birch Gold. They're people that I trust, people I think are really good at their jobs. Birch Gold Group has thousands of satisfied customers, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. If you look back historically, when the bottom falls out of everything else, gold does tend to safeguard savings. Contact Birch Gold Group, get a free information kit on physical precious metals. See if diversifying into gold and silver makes sense for you. Their comprehensive 16-page kit Reveals how gold and silver can protect your savings. Hey, you can legally move your IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds and into a precious metals IRA, if that's something you're into. To get your no-cost and no-obligation kit, text BEN to 474747. Again, text BEN, my name, to 474747. Text BEN to 474747. Okay, so Israel had its second election in like eight months yesterday. And that followed another election just a few months ago in which an impasse was created After Benjamin Netanyahu apparently had a majority bloc formed and a man named Avigdor Lieberman, who was his former defense minister and actually a former member of his own party, Likud, he took his party, the Israel Beitenu Party, and basically refused to form a coalition with Netanyahu so long as Netanyahu was, in his words, pandering toward the religious parties in Israel. So there are several competing cross-currents in Israeli politics. In the United States abroad, everybody tends to think that Israeli politics is mainly and centrally about policy toward the Palestinian Authority or policy toward Europe or policy toward the United States. And that simply is not true in much the same way that policy in the United States and politics in the United States are largely not about foreign policy. And in the United States, most of the stuff we think about is domestic policy. In Israel, most of the stuff that people think about is domestic policy, specifically because there is a widespread consensus ever since the second intifada of 2000, 2001, there's a widespread consensus that there is no peace to be negotiated with a bunch of terrorists, which, of course, is true. And this is the dirty little secret of Israeli politics that the press seems to want to ignore. That dirty little secret is that even if Benjamin Netanyahu does not end up as prime minister of Israel, there is no world in which there are bilateral negotiations with the Palestinian Authority ending with a peace deal. It's not a thing that's going to happen. Kachov al the blue and white party in Israel, which is led by a former IDF chief of staff named Benny Gantz, Okay, who right now, the the Europeans are attempting to try him for war crimes or some such, because if you ever served in the Israeli military, the Europeans will try to try you for war crimes. Benny Gantz is not going to fundamentally shift Israeli foreign policy. He may shift domestic policy with regards to economics. Bibi has been, Netanyahu has been a, a liberalizing prime minister in terms of trying to free the economy. He has also worked hand in glove with a lot of the religious parties. And this is another competing cross current in Israel. So they're A bunch of domestic competing cross-currents in Israeli politics, as I mentioned. One is is economic. The foundations of the state of Israel are socialistic. So, If you go back to the foundation of the state of Israel, it was founded on the socialist ideal. People lived on kibbutzim, which were basically communes. That fell apart. Israel has been moving in a more capitalist direction ever since, which is why it is one of the world's tech leaders now, which is why there are a lot of companies that are based in Israel. It is leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of other countries on a per capita basis in terms of technological development and education. That is because of a liberalization of the economy. But there's a significant and huge social welfare state in the state of Israel. And that's been a source of tension in the state of Israel. And then another major source of tension has been the religious versus the secular in Israel. So the state was founded by secular Zionists, people who believed that there needed to be a homeland for Jews to keep them safe, but weren't particularly religious, didn't have a lot of relationship with traditional Jewish religion. And then there's a big block of people living in Israel who are very religious. And there's all sorts of conflict over. Public laws, like for example, should the buses run on Shabbat? Should the buses run on Sabbath? The religious say no. Why are we publicly funding buses to run on the Jewish day of rest? It is a Jewish state. And secular Israelis saying, right, it's a state for the Jews. It's a Jewish state where Jews are supposed to be safe. But it is not a Jewish state in terms of ritual law. Okay, so that's one area of conflict. A smaller one. A bigger one is whether the so-called Haredim, the the media call them ultra-Orthodox, but basically it is a sect of Orthodox Judaism, whether whether the Haredim should serve in the military because the military is overwhelmingly secular. A lot of the, the the Haredim say they don't want to serve in the military. And so they get some sort of religious exemption. Now on a personal level, I'm not in favor of the religious exemption. On a personal level, my belief is that if, you, if a secular Israeli is serving in the military, then a religious Israeli should serve in the military, that everybody should serve in the military in Israel. And there are things called Hester Yeshivot, where there are a bunch of Orthodox Jews who do serve in the military in Israel, and that should become the model in Israel, this sort of religious Zionist movement, and that's a powerful movement in Israel. But the conflict between the, the more Orthodox parties and the secular parties broke out into the open a couple of years ago, within the last couple of years, because Benj- Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition in Israel, it's not a two-party system, it's a multi-party system. You have to have a bunch of parties that form a majority, and they all have to get together, and then they have to form a majority of the Knesset in order to govern, BB's coalition has been formed with the help of the so-called right-wing parties, as well as with the religious parties. So that would be parties like Yisrael Beiteinu, which is a secular but right-wing party, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, as well as parties like Shas or UTJ, United Toward Judaism, which are the religious parties and vote largely based on religious concerns and subsidies to religious communities and, and all of that. So. Yisrael Beitein, who decided, Avigdor Lieberman, who has a real dislike for Bibi Netanyahu. There's a significant personality clash between the two of them. And that is partially because Netanyahu has a long history of basically stymieing the growth efforts of people within the Likud. So one of the weird things about Israeli politics also is that a lot of the other parties in Israeli politics were started by people who were cast-offs from the Likud. In other words, people who wanted to succeed Netanyahu and Netanyahu wasn't making room for them. Because in, in Israel, very often, the leadership of the party sort of moves on to make room for the up-and-comers. So you have a bunch of people who are outside of Likud now, outside of Netanyahu's party, who started their own parties because Netanyahu was not really allowing them a path to, to power. So that would include Ayala Shaked. Ayala Shaked is a, a very—she's uh, she, been noted in the foreign media because she's very attractive. She also happens to be a brilliant lawyer. She was justice minister under Benjamin Netanyahu. And now she is the head of a different party— and she's the, she's the head of, a, of another right-wing party that is also led by Naftali Bennett, who also used to be a member of Likud, I believe. And then you have Benny Gantz, who I believe also used to be a member of Likud, leading Kachov Lavan. And you have Evigdor Lieberman, who used to be a member of Likud, leading Yisrael Beiteinu. So Bibi has maintained power at the expense of kicking out or forcing out or convincing people to leave, moving them out of Likud. And this has led to an erosion in the size and umbrella st- status of Likud But it has led to Bibi Netanyahu being able to maintain power with a series of coalition governments. So anyway, a couple of years ago, Avigdor Lieberman basically made it clear that he and Netanyahu were significantly at odds and he was not going to sit in a government that was led by Netanyahu. Okay, so it looked as though Netanyahu might cut a deal with Lieberman. And the deal was going to be that he was going to force the religious groups with which he was already in a coalition. He's going to force those groups to do things they didn't want to do. Right. He, he might think about trying to push some of them into more military service or cutting subsidies or any of that sort of stuff. And Lieberman was pushing very hard for that. Netanyahu said no. And so the government fell apart. There's an election and, and Lieberman was still the kingmaker. And if Victor Lieberman is a clever political player, he was still the kingmaker because basically you had two blocks inside of Israeli politics. You had Likud and the right wing parties and the religious parties, and then you had blue and white which the media are calling center-left, but it really is not a center-left party. It's, it's sort of a slightly to the left of Likud party. A center-left party would have been, in the old days, labor, but labor is no longer really even a player. It's kind of amazing. Blue and white with the rest of the left and the Arab party, so 20% of Israel's population is Arab and Muslim, which, again, goes to the, the idea that, that Israel's an apartheid state. The third largest party in the Knesset is a Muslim-Arab party, right? The joint list. Okay, so... That other bloc also had like 55 seats, and Lieberman was the kingmaker. Well, Bibi had a coalition he could have formed with Lieberman, but they couldn't cut a deal, so Bibi called new elections. This was the second round of the elections, and they result in exactly the same situation. So Bibi ends up with basically 56 seats in the right-wing coalition. The center-left and and joint list end up with 55 seats or 56 seats. The results are still coming in, in, in their coalition, and Lieberman ends up being the swing. So there's a lot of talk about how exactly all of this ends up, right? It, does it end up that Lieberman sides with the center left and the joint list? Does he side instead with Netanyahu and the, and the religious parties and they somehow find a way to bridge that gap? Or do they do what Lieberman wants? What Lieberman wants is he wants to be seen as the kingmaker in what they call a unity government. A unity government is where people from across the aisle come together. And then they just form a broad coalition for purposes of governing. And what he wants is for Cajol de Lavan, which is Netanyahu's chief rivals, to join a coalition government with Netanyahu's Likud and Lieberman holding them together. And that would be an extremely strong majority, right? Because if if you have blue and white Kovalavan, which has, I think, 32 seats, and you have Likud, which also has 32 seats or 33, and you add those together, it's 55. And then you have Lieberman on top of that. You now have 64. You can add in, you can add in another bunch of seats from probably the the right wing, I yell at Shaked, Naftali Bennett party, you end up with probably well over 70 seats. Now you have a unity. Go- now, the problem with the unity government is it's kind of fragile, right? Because people don't get along so well, right? They don't, they don't have a lot of shared political priorities. So, again, three options on the table. Lieberman joins the central left and the Arab party to create a majority coalition. That's not going to happen. So the media are invested in the idea that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay, Lieberman is not joining a coalition with the Muslim Arab Party joint list in Israel. The reason being, members of that party, the parties that formed that joint, it's called the joint list because it used to be a bunch of smaller parties that all joined together to create a joint list. Those parties have openly in the past called for the destruction of the state of Israel. Lieberman is a hawk on security. It would be like John Bolton joining a coalition with Ilhan Omar. It's not going to happen. Avigdor Lieberman is not joining a majority coalition with the joint list, and he has said so. Okay, It's not me saying that. It's Avigdor Lieberman saying that. The media, because they hate Netanyahu so much, they keep acting as the Lieberman is going to join that coalition and cast Netanyahu completely out of power. That is not a thing that's going to happen. Okay, so the other two possibilities are that Lieberman joins the right-wing coalition because Netanyahu pays him off with something. Right, Netanyahu gives him a particularly juicy post- he puts a bunch of members of the of Yisrael Beiteinu into the government in various posts. He makes concessions to Yisrael Beiteinu with regard to the religious parties. And Lieberman is able to pry out of Netanyahu what he wasn't able to pry out of Netanyahu before. And Netanyahu remains prime minister. Or alternatively, you end up with a rotating prime ministership. And there was some talk about this after the last election, that basically you would end up with almost what the founders envisioned when they had the president elected as the person with the most vote, and the vice president became the second most voted person. And you ended up with this weird government where Thomas Jefferson was serving uh, in in John Adams' administration. It's kind of like that. You would end up with Benny Gantz as part-time prime minister, and you'd end up with Bibi Netanyahu as part-time prime minister, and Lieberman as the power broker between the two. Those are the two available choices. And if none of those choices happen, we get another election. And they just keep doing this thing until they form a coalition. So that is where things sit. The way the media are playing this as big loss for Bibi Netanyahu. Except I'm not sure that Netanyahu really thought that things were going to radically change from the last election cycle. In fact, the best thing for Bibi Netanyahu is for Bibi Netanyahu probably to enter the unity government. Now, I don't know if Netanyahu believes that. But Netanyahu may believe that his best path is to continue to maintain power by cutting a deal with Lieberman. And Lieberman is going to exact a heavy price in order to make that happen. There's been a lot of talk in Israel about whether Netanyahu's relationship with Trump didn't pay off to his benefit, that he was saying that he's super tight with Trump and that the Israeli public was basically like, well, it doesn't have to be you. It could be Benny Gantz negotiating with Trump. Also, he had mentioned the possibility of a joint defense pact and Trump had not come through with anything like that in the days leading up to the election. There was was this idea that maybe he had undermined Netanyahu. Jerusalem Post was talking about that. I don't think that's really the case. I think the people are just frustrated that Netanyahu didn't form a government last time. And so they voted exactly the same way this time that they did last time, which makes sense. If we reheld the vote of 2016 in 2017, it would probably look a lot like the vote of 2016. So that is where things currently lie. I think that the most likely outcome probably is the unity government. I think that that would be the smartest thing for Netanyahu to do because Netanyahu is currently under the possibility of indictment. He can't be indicted while he is the sitting prime minister. So, so long as he is the sitting prime minister, rotating power with Benny Gantz, it's not bad for him. Plus, let's be real about this. Benny Gantz, who's this general, the head of the Kachov Levan, the, the blue and white party. Benny Gantz is an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in riddle. Okay, but nobody knows anything about him. They know sort of his military background. So he's a lot like a lot of other former Israeli leaders who have a military background, but they've kept their politics pretty hidden. That'd be people like Yitzhak Rabin, who ended up on the left, and Ehud Barak, who's also an IDF chief of staff, who ended up on the left. It would also include people like Ariel Sharon, who ended up on the right, but not near as right as people thought he was going to be, who was a general in the Israeli army. Israel has a habit of electing high-ranking military men to positions of power because Israel is constantly in a tenuous international situation with regard to security. But if the Israeli public see a a rotating prime ministership between Bibi, and and Benny Gantz, or a shared power arrangement between the two of them. It's pretty obvious who's going to win that public relations battle. Benny Gantz is not good at this. They've been hiding Benny Gantz basically behind a tree, this whole election cycle. And Benny Gantz has said five words, maybe, for the entire election cycle. So if he actually ends up in power, it's I do not think that that is a long-lasting arrangement. Now, the other possibility is that the Likud actually ousts Netanyahu, in order to cut a deal with Lieberman, right? That is, the, that is sort of the out of left field possibility is that the internal Likud battle takes place and somebody else, like a second tier person, there there are a few names that are floating around, ends up taking over the leadership of Likud. He cuts a deal with Lieberman and he ends up becoming the next prime minister. What does this mean for foreign policy? The answer for foreign policy is it doesn't mean a hell of a lot. Really, it does not mean a hell of a lot because again, there's a widespread Israeli consensus. Iran wants to murder us. Hezbollah wants to murder us. Hamas wants to murder us, right? This is what Israelis think. And the Europeans don't like us. And Trump's our friend. And we're not cutting a deal with a bunch of terrorists who want to murder us, right? That is the, the internal Israeli consensus over there. So that's not changing, whether Benny Gantz ends up in power or whether Netanyahu ends up in power. And it's going to be a widespread surprise to the left when Benny Gantz ends up basically governing like Bibi Netanyahu would on foreign policy. And it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see how they react to that, frankly. Because they've always posed it as that Bibi Netanyahu was the obstacle to peace in the Middle East. The obvious truth is that it is all the terrorists that surround uh, surround Israel that are the obstacle to peace in the Middle East. And then what I, I predict what you'll see is the media turn on the Israeli public and suggest that the Israeli public is the real obstacle. So it's no longer Netanyahu. It's no longer Benny Gantz. It's all the people who elect these people. If only they would elect, they'd bring back the Meretz party. If only they'd bring back Shalom Akshav, then bring back the Peace Now Party from the mid-90s, then everything would be healed and be all better. The media have a vested interest in trying to portray the Israel-Palestinian conflict as Israel's fault. It is a bunch of crap. It has always been a bunch of crap. They will continue to press that forward. They've tried to blame it on Netanyahu so they can avoid the baseline reality, which is that the Israeli public are not going to make concessions to terrorists. But I think they're soon to be disabused of the notion that this is just a Netanyahu policy. This is an Israeli policy. Israelis are not cutting deals with Mahmoud Abbas's terrorist Palestinian authority or Hamas or Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah. They're not doing any of those things. Okay, coming up in a second, we'll talk about Mike Pompeo, who's heading to the Middle East to figure out Iran strategy. First, let's talk about the importance of a business card. So I go to a lot of events and people are constantly trying to hand me business cards. I will admit that just like any other human being, I'm affected by the look of a business card. If it looks cheap, like you printed it out from Kinko's, very likely it ends up in the washing machine in my pocket of my jeans. If, however, it is a nice business card, there's a better shot that I end up handing it over to my assistant, Caitlin, who's wonderful, by the way, and she ends up putting it in the Rolodex. Well, you could be getting a nice business card that really makes an impression from Vista Print. Your next big opportunity is coming right now, all it takes to feel like you're ready to own the now is 10 bucks. For 10 bucks, Vistaprint gives you 500 personalized cards with exactly the look that you want. That is a low price to make a lasting impression. And because you can choose the colors, fonts, designs, images, well, that means you can create something as unique and compelling as your business. I mean, really make a first impression. As I say... You give a nice business card, you are going to stand out. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation, and that's why our listeners will get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Just go to vistaprint.com, enter promo code SHAPIRO2 for free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. This is a limited time offer. Own the now at vistaprint.com, promo code SHAPIRO2. That's promo code SHAPIRO followed by the number two. You support our show when you support our sponsors. Go check out vistaprint.com right now. Use that promo code Shapiro too. Okay, so Mike Pompeo, meanwhile, is headed over to the Middle East to figure out Iran's strategy. It's unclear the Iran strategy that is actually being pursued at this point. As I say yesterday, I think that the actual foreign policy of the United States is, was, and kind of always will be muddled through because the American people aren't interested in empire building. I think correctly so. The American people are also not interested in full-scale isolationism because every time the United States gets isolationist, we get a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11. So we end up kind of being mildly reactive. Yeah, we're present in the world. We have bases all over the place. We have a strong military and we can react to threats, but we don't want long term occupations or invasions. We're not into that sort of thing. And so what happens when there's a hot spot like Iran tends to be the possibility of a flare up and then it kind of recedes. Iran is, is, the, is the herpes outbreak of the Middle East, the Iranian government. They flare up and then they sort of recede. So Mike Pompeo is trying to create a policy right now. The Washington Post reporting that the Trump administration has announced that Pompeo would fly to the Persian Gulf on Wednesday to discuss a response to an attack on Saudi oil facilities as Iran's supreme leader ruled out any direct talks with the United States. Pompeo's spur of the moment trip, which will include stops in Saudi Arabia and the UAE, underscores the danger that tensions with Iran could spiral into military conflict. President Trump has said Iran was probably responsible for the attack, that he would like to avoid a war. Pompeo has assigned blame more directly. Now, Trump obviously, obviously does not wish for there to be a war with Iran at this point. This is why I've suggested that the likeliest solution here is that the United States pledges to strengthen the defense of Saudi Arabia without pledging any sort of aggressive action against Iran. I think that's probably the happy medium where the U.S. ends up. We maybe end up helping flag some tankers in the Straits of Hormuz and guiding those tankers through the Straits of Hormuz against the possibility of Iranian aggression, reestablishing some sense of deterrence. The weekend attack, which the United States says it believes originated in Iran, despite claims by rebels in Yemen that they carried it out, appears to have dashed all hope that Trump might meet with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani at the UN General Assembly in New York. Well, the Iranians, I don't think, were all that interested in face-to-face meetings with Trump. I think they're more interested in pressuring the Europeans to break with Trump and undermine the JCPOA, the 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 revocation of the of the Iran nuclear deal. The Europeans want to surrender to Iran. Okay, it is pretty much that simple. The Europeans want Iran to get their money. They want Iran to be part of the world economy, and they don't care if Iran spreads terrorism all over the Middle East. They simply don't care. Because they figure the US is going to foot the bill anyway if something goes wrong, which unfortunately has been European foreign policy since basically the late Cold War. You know, the, the, the fact that, that Trump, when, when Trump says that the Europeans have not paid their, share, their fair share for defense, that is technically true. I mean, the United States basically footed the bill for all of European defense for several decades during the Cold War. And that allowed them to live high on the hog in terms of social welfare programs. Well, Europe can pursue that policy again, but there will be some tragic consequences to that policy. And you're starting, by the way, to see those consequences in terms of the outbreak of nationalist sentiment in Europe, largely driven by the increase in, in unvetted Muslim refugees coming from the Middle East into the heart of Europe and creating all sorts of social schisms. Okay, the, the Iran Supreme Leader Ayatollah al-Khamenei said all the officials in the Islamic Republic unanimously believe there will be no negotiations at any level with the United States. Again, they're trying to pressure the Europeans. This is not about the United States at this point. I think that the way this ends probably is with the United States trying to Trying to strengthen, shore up Saudi defenses without getting involved in a conflict. Okay, meanwhile, there's a new NBC Wall Street Journal poll out. Joe Biden continues to lead the 2020 Democratic field. Elizabeth Warren continues to steal support from Bernie Sanders. So she's not actually taking support from Joe Biden. She's taking support from Bernie Sanders. And sooner or later, Sanders is going to have to open up the guns. So if these poll results are real, sooner or later, Bernie Sanders is going to have to go to war with her. So this was the question. As I said last week before the last debate, there was basically a a Mexican standoff like at the end of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in which Joe Biden was pointing his guns at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Warren was pointing at Sanders and Biden and Sanders was pointing at Warren and and Biden, but nobody wanted to fire because if you're the first person to fire, you lose. That was the basic rule. It was a reservoir dog standoff scenario. It It was Joe Biden wanted to watch Elizabeth and Bernie go to war and wreck each other and Warren wanted... Sanders and Biden to go to war and wreck each other, and Biden and they all want the other two to go to war. Right? Sanders wants Warren and Biden to go to war and wreck each other. That that was the basic math. But if Elizabeth Warren starts stealing away enough support from Bernie Sanders, he's not going to have a choice but he has to wreck her because he's hoping that if he wrecks her, then maybe those people come back flooding to him. And if he sits still, he's out of the race. So we'll get to those poll results in just one second. First. Let's talk about how hard it is to create healthy habits. You know, when you are trying to get in the habit of working out every day, trying to get in the habit of eating healthy, and people will talk about diets, but diets end up being yo-yo kind of things where you go on the diet and then you get off the diet and it ain't great. Or you start exercising because you're really enthusiastic and like a week later you're not enthusiastic anymore and you stop the diet. Well, this is why you need Noom. Noom is fantastic. It is an app that helps you change yourself, helps you change your approach to fitness and health, they help you achieve specific goals, not just losing weight. They, they will, they will, it's not just a nutrition app that helps you calorie count, though it is that. It will give you psychological tips to help you overcome the, whatever is weighing on you today so you can get done what you need to get done. It gives you informational techniques about the kinds of food and how they are processed, It is just fantastic. I've been using Noom. I wanted to lose about five pounds. I have taken off to five pounds. That's why I look so ripped and chiseled lately. That is because of Noom. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Noom is not a diet. It's a healthy, easy-to-stick-to way of life. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps. That's where the big progress is made. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash Shapiro. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash Shapiro. Start your trial today. That's Noom.com slash Shapiro. It's the last weight loss program you will need. Noom.com slash Shapiro. I actually recommended it to my parents. It really is fantastic. Okay, so here are the latest poll results. There are two new polls out. They both show Joe Biden up. They both show Bernie Sanders down. That is the trend. So there's a, there have been, let's see, four polls taken since the debates last week. And two of them, have Biden up a lot larger and two of them have Biden up a lot smaller. So there's a political morning consult poll that came out yesterday. And the polling period was, let's see, today is the 18th. So the polling period would have been Saturday through Monday. And that polling, that that poll, the political morning consult poll, showed Biden with 32, Sanders with 20, Warren with 18. So basically Biden way ahead and Warren and Sanders neck and neck. There's a Survey USA poll, same basic period, and it shows Biden at 33, Warren at 19, Bernie at 17. So Warren ahead of Bernie, but still close. Then there's the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, and this is the one that has got to have Bernie Sanders in a panic. It has Joe Biden up at 31, Elizabeth Warren at 25, and Bernie Sanders at 14. In other words, the media attention on Elizabeth Warren is driving people from Bernie Sanders over to Elizabeth Warren. Now, I'd suggested that, Last week's debate was a blown opportunity for Warren, that if she wanted to make a strong move, then she would have to at some point go after Biden, that she's figuring if she bides her time, it'll be okay. I still think that she blew an opportunity. I think that she receded into the field. But it is also true that she is becoming the default not Biden, not Sanders candidate. And that is something, right? I mean, just being there and being the person who is not slow, old, moderate, gaffy Joe and also not being bonnie, crazy Sanders. It's a thing. It's a thing. There's room for that. Being progressive enough for some of the Sanders people, but being not crazy enough for some of the Biden people. That's not a bad place to be. Is it enough for her to win the primaries? I don't know. Because again, she has no black support, like none, none whatsoever. And she's received just fawning media attention. Absolutely fawning. The New York Times, fawning over the fact that she brought out several thousand people to Central Park in New York yesterday. And Donald Trump rightly pointing out to the media, guys, like if you stop in the middle of 42nd Avenue in New York Street, in New York City, there are like 1,000 people there. If you can't draw a crowd in New York City, you suck at politics, right? Kamala Harris drew like 10,000, 20,000 people to her lead off in Sacramento. So drawing a big crowd, as Mitt Romney learned at the end of the 2012 election, does not mean that you're going to win an election. Trump is right about that. With that said, there are two polls. Both of them show Warren up over Sanders now. NBC News, Wall Street Journal, Biden 31, Warren 25, Sanders 14. Economist YouGov, this one has always been very favorable to Elizabeth Warren, actually. The last time they did this poll, this Economist YouGov poll, it showed Biden and Warren basically even. So she's actually dropped a little bit in this poll from what I see. Biden at 26, Warren at 21, Sanders at 14. So that means that she's closed within striking distance of Biden, but she would have to convince half of Sanders' support to move over to her. And I wonder if that's the case. I do wonder if that's the case, because it seems to me that the Bernie bros, the people who love Bernie- they got to be looking at Warren and saying, "This is, she's a phony. She's a fraud. And this is not someone sufficiently committed to our communist way of life. And I think that there will come a, it's still very early. There will come a point somewhere in here where Warren starts to earn some negative media attention. It happens to every candidate. They got their ups and their downs. She started with a real bad down with the, I'm Native American. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. That was real bad. And then she's had a consistent uptick in media energy and attention and, and and sycophantic coverage directed at her for months. And that's led to this increasing steady rise. Right, as opposed to some of the other candidates who've added ups and downs, like Beto started here and just went directly down. Right? I mean, that, that was Beto's candidacy. Elizabeth Warren starts down and has been trending up, but it's still early. There's still room for for people to go after Elizabeth Warren. Even Stephen Colbert was tempted to do that last night. He asked her about the whole you know, you keep saying that you're not going to raise taxes on the middle class or you avoid the question and um, uh, you're avoiding the question. There
1: hasn't been Medicare for all before. You keep being asked in the debates, how are you going to pay for it? Are you going to raise the middle class taxes? Right. How are you going to pay for it? Are you going to raise the middle class taxes? So here's how we're going to do this. Uh, costs are going to go up. For the wealthiest Americans, for big corporations. Taxes, which is what we mean by cost? Yeah. Okay. And hardworking middle class families are going to see their costs go down.
0: And, but will their taxes go up?
1: Well, but here's the thing. No, I but here's sp- the
0: thing. I've listened to these answers a few times before. Okay, and then he keeps saying, like, good for Stephen Col- I've never said these words before. Good for Stephen Colbert. So Stephen is kind of, uh, Colbert is basically a Bernie bro. Stephen Colbert asking her a very straight question and not getting a straight answer Eventually, this is going to come back to haunt Elizabeth Warren. There is this image of her as this pristine progressive, and it's such nonsense. She is just as phony as Kamala Harris. She's just better at it. And I think that the progressive left is going to wake up to this. And when that happens, there's going to be a virulent reaction, and there will be an internecine war between Joe, but not between Joe Biden, between Elizabeth Warren and between Bernie Sanders. That internecine war is coming. Now, Bernie, you remember, Bernie actually did the same routine with Hillary Clinton early in the primaries. Right, early in the primaries, said, I don't care about her damn emails. And then by the end of the race, he was like, remember those emails, guys? Remember that? That was weird. Right? Bernie Sanders steered clear of Hillary until it became clear he could not steer clear of Hillary anymore. Well, you're going to see the same thing happen with Elizabeth Warren. He went on The View and he was like, Elizabeth and I are good friends. We've been good friends for 20 years. At a certain point, he's going to start flinging pudding at her. Here, take this chocolate pudding. And that, that's the way this is going to go. Because... It can't go any other way. I mean, if he starts to lose support, who the hell is he going to go after? Joe Biden? Really, there's no case for that. Now, in a second, we're going to talk about the great hope for Elizabeth Warren. And it lies not in stealing Bernie Sanders's support, but in finishing Joe Biden. Because again, Joe Biden's base of support is heavily minority. A lot of black voters really like Joe Biden. Why? Well, because he is stapled to Barack Obama's pant leg. And he is the chicken who crossed the road. Right, Barack Obama was the chicken who crossed the road, and Joe Biden is the is the person stapled to the chicken's pant leg. Right? I mean, that that, that, is, that is what happened here. Joe Biden is a hanger-on. He's always been a hanger-on, but that's not a bad place to be with black voters in the United States, among whom Barack Obama is still extraordinarily popular. We'll get to Joe Biden in just one second. First, let's talk about your sleep quality. So I'm on the road. You know what that means. I'm not sleeping as well as I would were I at home, not just because my wife is not here, but also because The quality of my bed is not as good. I'm staying in a nice hotel, but let me tell you, my mattress at home, way more comfortable. Why? Because I'm using Helix Sleep. Helix Sleep has a quiz. It takes two minutes to complete. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. No matter how you sleep, on your side, on your back, whether you're a hot sleeper, whatever, Helix can make just what your body needs. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. They will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. As I say, I cannot wait to get home right now specifically because I need some sleep and Helix is going to make it happen. For couples, Helix can even split that mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They've got a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it but you will, Helix is offering up to 125 bucks off all mattress orders for our listeners. Get up to 125 bucks off at helixsleep.com slash Ben. That's helixsleep.com slash Ben for up to 125 bucks off your mattress order. Helixsleep.com slash Ben, go check them out right now. Okay, in just a second, we'll get to Joe Biden and the and the only attack that matters on Joe Biden. Okay, we'll get to that in just one second. We'll also get to Corey Lewandowski really going at it with the House Judiciary Committee Democrats. For some good and some ill, we'll get to that in one second. First, you have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. If you do that, you spend $9.99 a month or $99 a year, you get the rest of this show live. You also get two additional hours of me every single day on video, on demand, without commercials. You get all of that. You also get the Michael Moles show. If that's a thing that you want, don't know why you would. But we have Matt Walsh, who's great. And we also have Andrew Clavin, who is mediocre. So we have a lot of mediocre to great and one one bad host. You can check all of that out simply by subscribing over at dailywire.com. And $99 a year also gets you this. The very greatest in beverage vessels, of course. The Leftist Tears hot or cold tumbler refilling daily. It is magical. And as I say, we have deactivated the cloaking device because I want you to see it so we can advertise it. But normally when we're on the road, it actually disappears. It's pretty incredible. So go check us out over at dailywire.com. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. (laughs) So as I've now been saying for several weeks, there are two lines of attack on Joe Biden that have been used. One is that he's old and we keep seeing him gaff. So, for example, he said yesterday that the child tax credit that he's pushing could put 720 million women back in the workforce, which is a weird stat considering there are 330 million people in the United States. So I'm not sure where he's coming up with the other 400 million people and why all of them are women. Is this a weird Joe Biden fantasy? Who knows? A lot of shoulders to rub there. But Joe, is that sort of stuff going to hurt Joe Biden? No, that's not going to hurt Joe Biden because, again, we all know he's slow old Joe and he gaffes all the time. He's been gaffing for years, right? He was called Uncle Joe because he was the kind of dopey uncle at the Thanksgiving party who would have one too many beers and stumble into the den while you're watching football and knock over the chips, right? That's who Uncle Joe was when he was Uncle Joe. Now he's just Grandpa Joe and he can't stumble into the room anymore and knock over the chips. He basically just sort of conks out. On the, on the 1970 zero recliner with his feet up and his shoes off, right? That, that's Joe Biden now. I say in a general election, I don't think that hurts him. I mean, I think that a return to normalcy, even if the normalcy is just basically a comatose human being, that's not a horrible pitch. But in a primary, it ain't going to help him too much. But at the same time, it's not going to hurt him too much. We all know who he is. You know, they, they keep pretending that gaff upon gaff upon gaffe upon, gaffe upon gaffe. I promise you, Elizabeth Warren's gaffes, it seems like far bigger than a gaffe that she just keeps lying about whether she's going to raise middle-class taxes. It seems like that that's, a, that's not a gaffe. That's like an actual policy fail for Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, I, I don't think that's going to hurt him. The second line of attack on Joe Biden is that he has to be canceled. And this one, again, I have a hard time believing that this is going to hurt him simply because the nature of the messengers carrying the attack are not capable of hurting him. So Kamala Harris briefly hurt Joe Biden when she went to the You didn't want forced busing, even though she didn't want forced busing and nobody wanted forced busing in the 1970s. And she she briefly heard him with the you were hanging out with segregationists. And he was like, no, they're just senators. And I was working with them and some of them are bad people. And I said, so she briefly heard him because she had the credibility to speak on the issue, because in our era of identity politics, a white person saying that to Joe Biden has no impact. A black candidate saying that to Joe Biden has some impact. And then. Her poll numbers started to drop and his started to rise again. And he wasn't supremely damaged by any of that. Elizabeth Warren playing that card ain't gonna have any sort, like that That ain't gonna work at all. Elizabeth Warren is whiter than the backside of this piece of paper. I mean, she is as white as snow. Elizabeth Warren is whiter than I am and that is pretty damned white. I mean, I clap on one in three, gang. I mean, she is, she is she is very white. And so her going after Biden's base of support is likely unavailing. And so instead what you're seeing is some of the, so-called opinion journalists in the media, some of the professors of history going after Joe Biden on her behalf, right? hoping that if they knock him down, that she will rise up. Again, I don't I don't think that that is likely to work particularly well, but they're going to try. Marsha Chatelaine is the distinguished associate professor of history at Georgetown University, and she has a piece in The Washington Post today called Joe Biden isn't the only Democrat who has blamed black America for its problems. She says, former Vice President Joe Biden spent Sunday at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, speaking on the anniversary of a bombing there. that killed four black girls. The candidate has had some trouble handling issues involving race. After conceding that institutional segregation and redlining banks exist, Biden veered away from a logic that might have called for some strands of reparative justice. Instead, he turned to the old liberal playbook, castigate black families. Look, he started. You talk about education. After rightly suggesting higher wages for teachers and more funding for schools with Title I designation, Biden reminded listeners that teachers, a profession that is majority white, cannot do it alone. They have, he said, every problem coming to them. And the way to improve outcomes in segregated schools would be simply to send social workers to visit black families to teach them how to raise their children better, complete with the record player on at night to expose kids to more words. While Biden was criticized roundly for that answer, it fit quite neatly into the grand American political tradition of evading serious conversation about the legacy of slavery by expressing displeasure with the victims of it. Well, I'm sorry if you knock up a woman and then leave. That is not you being a victim of slavery. That's you being a bad person. I mean, that no, the answer is no. You don't get to blame the personal decision that you made to have a child out of wedlock with a person with whom you were not married on slavery. Because you were not enslaved. That person was not enslaved. Their parents were not enslaved. Their grandparents were not enslaved. Their great-grandparents were likely not enslaved. Their great-great-grandparents maybe were enslaved. Probably you're talking about their great-great-great-grandparents. Okay, so no, you don't get to do that. So, but I I guess the idea is that if Joe Biden suggests that if you are going to, you know, prosecute criminality or encourage parents to spend more time on education in the home or encourage parents to stay married, that this is the vestiges of slavery, of victim blaming. I I don't think that dog hunts. But I think that the left would like for that dog to hunt. And so they're going to continue pushing that. We'll see if the Democratic Party falls for it. I have my doubts about that. So predictions. I think that Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders will go to war in quite short order. I think that Joe Biden is going to sit this one out. And I think that Joe Biden will probably benefit from that war at least a little bit. Okay, meanwhile, there was a big hearing yesterday at the House Judiciary Committee. Democrats called Corey Lewandowski. Why? Well, when Corey Lewandowski was an aide to Donald Trump, Trump, according to the Mueller report, called on Corey Lewandowski to, to deliver a letter to Jeff Sessions, basically firing him for not firing Robert Mueller. And Lewandowski conveniently just didn't do it, right? Can, Corey Lewandowski was like, oh, that's kind of a bad idea. We're not going to do that. And it was in the Mueller report. There was talk about whether it amounted to obstruction. There's an argument, yes. There's, an uh, I think, a more solid argument, no, although I, I definitely see the argument for yes. But it's all in the Mueller report. Democrats can't let the Mueller report go because the Mueller report did not recommend prosecution. It didn't make any recommendation at all. And as it turns out, it would have been very difficult to prove obstruction of justice on the basis of the allegations that were made in the Mueller report. Democrats don't even want to impeach on that basis. And Nancy Pelosi does not want to impeach on the basis of the Mueller report. Democrats, nonetheless, have to prove their mettle to their own supporters. And so they called forth Corey Lewandowski and it went really poorly for them because it turns out that, you know, what Corey Lewandowski is fantastic at grandstanding. I mean, really great at it. And Democrats were sending mixed messages. And on the one hand, they were like, you know, Corey, if you had delivered that letter, that would have been obstruction of justice. That was really bad. On the other hand, they're like, you're a chicken for not having delivered. You're a chicken for not having delivered. Here is, here is Needles Cohen, Steve Cohen. I call him Needles because he, really, he resembles in both face and manner Needles from Back to the Future 2 trying to tempt Marty McFly into a, into a game of chicken. Here's Steve Cohen saying to Corey Lewandowski that he's a chicken. Steve Cohen's I don't know what his thing with chicken is. You remember he actually went to a press conference to call somebody a chicken and he actually brought along like a KFC container. I don't know, what what's the obsession with chicken? I don't get it. Here's Steve Cohen.
1: Donald Trump talked to you outside normal channels so there'd be no record of, of anything that he asked you to do to obstruct justice. Nothing to do with that at all. The president knew what he was doing was wrong. Mr. Sessions knew what he was doing was wrong. Mr. McGahn knew what he was doing was wrong. You seemed to be the only person that didn't think it was wrong. But Mr. Trump was wrong. Because at the last minute, you got cold feet. You chickened out. The president's trust was misplaced. You decided not to do what you told the president you were going to do, and you handed it off to somebody else.
0: Yeah, McFly, you chicken? You chicken? You chicken? Lewandowski isn't going to confess to committing a crime. Like, well, what, what does Steve Cohen think he's doing? And this whole thing ended up being a debacle because Lewandowski basically just said to Democrats, you're not getting anything else out of me. So this is a waste of my time. Here's Lewandowski talking to Jerry Nadler, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, saying, why am I even here? This is stupid.
1: We as a nation would be better served if elected officials like yourself concentrated your efforts to combat the true crises facing our country, as opposed to going down rabbit holes like this hearing. Instead of focusing on petty and personal politics, the committee focused on solving the challenges of this generation. Imagine how many people we could help or how many lives we could save.
0: OK, yeah. That, so, so Lewandowski doing that routine, it's not a bad routine. So the good of Corey Lewandowski is he did call out the Democrats repeatedly for political grandstanding. And right, so Lewandowski completely derailed the impeachment hearing. I mean, he just went after people with hammer. He, he wants to run for Senate in New Hampshire. So it's a it's a good political moment for him. Here he is pretty much fully derailing this impeachment. This Impeachment hearing.
1: Mr. Lewandowski, is it correct that as reported in the Mueller report on June 19, 2017, you met alone in the Oval Office with the President? Is there a book and page number you can reference me to, please? I don't have a copy of the report in front of me. Volume 2, page 90. Could you read the exact language of the report, sir? I don't have it available to me. I don't think I need to do that, and I have limited time. Did you meet alone with the President on that date? Congressman, I'd like you to refresh my memory by providing a copy of the report so I can follow page, along. Page you don't have a copy with you? I don't have a copy of the report, Congressman. Clock was Mr. Stopped. Chairman, I request uh, that the clock be stopped while this uh, charade is sorted
0: out. OK, and then Lewandowski went after Sheila Jackson Lee. So she was she was, in fact, ranting about how Trump is a criminal. And he was like, why are you ranting at me? Stop ranting at me. It's look, it's entertaining. Is it good? No, I mean, Corey Lewandowski was engaged in bad activity with Trump. I mean, Trump was, in fact, telling him to go fire somebody in his administration because he didn't like the investigation that was being conducted. Now, was he attempting to obstruct the Mueller investigation? I mean, not really because Mueller didn't find anything. So that 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 sort of goes to intent here as opposed to Trump just being irritable and volatile and saying things. I mean, that's why, again, I say it would be difficult to prosecute. I think that it probably doesn't amount to obstruction because you have to have intent to obstruct in order to do that. And Trump does have the executive capacity to fire Robert Mueller. I mean, he works for the executive branch. But here's Corey Lewandowski Ripping into Sheila Jackson Lee.
1: We will expose the truth. Time the President the can hide, hide behind you any longer. And you gen- should be here to be telling the truth. Gentlelady general general because time the, the truth g- will set you free the and the American lady. people. I time, yield back. The time of the gentlelady has expired. The witness may answer the question. I don't believe there was a question, Congressman. Very well. Yes, there was. Could you repeat the question? I didn't hear it. i would be happy to repeat
0: it's the Just question. a rant. Okay, and that is actually true. I mean, because all of these House hearings are really stupid. <laughs> the truth is, when was the last time you watched a House hearing and you were like, oh, a new piece of information we didn't know? It's all grandstanding crap. Now, was it all good for Corey Lewandowski? No, because the fact is that Corey Lewandowski and the Trump administration do engage in dishonesty fairly regularly with the media. So Corey Lewandowski was act by, asked by a lawyer named Barry Burke. This is the new thing, is that Democrats are calling in lawyers to do the questioning they suck at. They call him this lawyer, Barry Burke, and Barry Burke, plays a clip of Lewandowski on MSNBC saying that he had never had any communication about Robert Mueller with Donald Trump. And here's Lewandowski being like, yeah, OK, so I lied. What you going to do about it? What you going to do about it?
1: I don't ever remember the president ever asking me to get involved with Jeff Sessions or the Department of Justice in any way, okay, shape or form so, ever. So you- Did you hear that, sir? That was you saying on MSNBC you don't ever remember the president ever asking you to get involved with Jeff Sessions or the Department of Justice in any way, shape or form. That wasn't true, was it, sir? I heard that. And that was not true, was it? I have no obligation to be honest to the media because there's just as dishonest as anybody else.
0: OK, I think that, that is that is a hell of a line. Now, here's the thing. He's admitting to lying, right? (laughs) Publicly lying. But I think that this is, it is kind of baked into the cake. I mean, unfortunately, this is the state of our politics. Is that bad? Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. You shouldn't lie to the media. At the same time, is it baked into the cake? Politically speaking, did this hurt Trump in any way? The answer is no. And you can see that the media were really disappointed that it didn't. An NBC correspondent just came out and said, listen, this hearing was a failure. It was a total fail. Insofar
1: as this was an effort to get a particular narrative out, today has been rocky. Yes, Sally, I think it's largely been a failure, and I think it's in part because Democrats have been more interested in in getting their moment on television of yelling at Corey Lewandowski
0: and making the point and winning the argument rather than patiently questioning him. Okay, and, and that, of course, is exactly true. It's exactly true. And because everybody feels like everything is a political football these days, nobody's going to, like, did anyone, was anyone under the wild misimpression that Corey Lewandowski is like a deeply honest human being? Uh, If so, I'm wondering why and why they would be under that misimpression. So it hurts Democrats more than it hurts Republicans. But it just reinforces the fact that Democrats are there to pander, Republicans are there to pander, and everything kind of sucks. Now, meanwhile, the polarization of um, the American public continues apace with woke scolds doing their best to ruin every aspect of American life. I'm very excited that Merriam-Webster Dictionary has now added the non-binary pronoun they to the dictionary. Because when I look at a book for definitions of words, what I want is a made-up definition of a word that has never been used this way in all of human history, a plural noun used as a singular noun to refer to a singular gender. We're going to use a plural noun, and Merriam-Webster is going to go along with this, which just demonstrates once and for all that logic has gone out the window. People are tailoring science to meet politically correct demands. People are tailoring language to meet politically correct demands. Merriam-Webster, according to the Washington Post, has added a new definition of the word they to its dictionary, declaring the pronoun may be used to refer to a single person whose gender identity is non-binary. They, according to the Washington Post, is a liberating pronoun for many non-binary individuals. Uh, What the hell is a liberating pronoun? How does a pronoun liberate you? Were you in shackles and then someone said they and now you're out of the shackles? What kind of nonsense is this? For many Americans, the use of they as a singular pronoun can be ungrammatical and confusing. That would not be for many Americans. That would be for all Americans, unless you're talking about the small group of SJWs who decide we have to redefine all of language in order to meet politically correct demands. It's, it, it is insane. And then you wonder why, pe- like, the same people who demand truth, truth, absolute truth. We're the media and we want the truth. Also, they is a singular pronoun. Not what now? Hmm? Obviously, look, honesty has taken a backseat on all sides to whatever is the political motivation of the day. This is just sort of an encapsulating perfect example. Okay, time for a thing I like, and then we'll do a quick thing that I hate. So, things that I like today. Uh, I've mentioned Howard Zinn before on the program. For people who have never read Howard Zinn's awful book, A People's History of the United States, which is basically a pastiche of horrible things about the United States taken out of context, out of historical context, a history that basically paints the United States the same as Nazi Germany, uh, a history that suggests that the United States is uniquely responsible for every evil the world has ever seen. Howard Zinn was a garbage, a garbage historian, and his book is terrible. There's a good book debunking all of Howard Zinn's stupid ideas by Mary Graybar, and the book is called Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. His book is still a massive bestseller. If you ever watched Goodwill Hunting, it's invoked as like the apotheosis of American history by the brilliant Matt Damon character. And that's how I knew that Matt Damon was an idiot in that film was because he's citing Howard Zinn. If you want to know what Howard Zinn was, namely a Marxist, if you want to know why his history is incorrect, just take a look at the book. American history does have shades. American history has good and it has bad. But according to Howard Zinn, it was all bad. Like every every aspect of it was bad. Even the best parts were bad. I mean, Howard Zinn spends a significant portion of a people's history of the United States explaining why Lincoln was bad and why he didn't really want to free the slaves. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty astonishing stuff, but... This book is good, debunking Howard's Inn. Go check it out right now. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. Okay, so Sean Spicer was on Dancing with the Stars. So I will admit that Dancing with the Stars may in fact be one of the things that I hate. Like, I think that this is just, it is the apex of American stupidity, and maybe Western stupidity generally. I assume they like this sort of thing in Europe as well. I mean, if you've ever seen the Eurovision concert, there's a lot of dumb in that as well. But Dancing with the Stars, which is basically where we take a bunch of B-listers, and then we try to prepare them to dance, and then we watch them. It does feel like the late days of Pan Am when you watch Dancing with the Stars. In any case, Sean Spicer, the former White House press secretary who was widely derided for his his bizarre sort of hostage videos— from the White House press secretaryship where he would be asked a question and he didn't want to give the answer. And so he would kind of stare into the distance and try to blink the answer in Morse code. In any case, Sean Spicer, who was ousted pretty early on in the Trump administration, is now on Dancing with the Stars. And uh, here is what it looked like. Former White House press secretary Sean Spicer. Yeah, well, listen. I, I will give it to Sean Spicer. It takes courage to wear that shirt uh, and to play the bongos and to dance. That that is that is the thing. That's not actually the thing I hate. So the thing that I hate is that all of this is stupid. But all of I mean, come on. The whole th- is this intelligent television? Did it make your life? Significant? No, but it, of course it's stupid. That's the whole point. It's kitschy. I get it. It's kitschy and it's fun kitsch. The left went nuts. How could you possibly treat Sean Spicer like any other B-list celebrity? After all, this man ruined the United States. The same people, by the way, who made Donald Trump into Donald Trump, right? They took a man who was a B-list celebrity in the 1990s and then turned him back into an A-list celebrity in the 2000s with a kitschy reality show in which he fired people or pretended to fire people. Those same people are like, we can't humor Sean Spicer. We can't humor Sean Spicer. The Washington Post has a piece called Dancing with the Stars Perfected, a formula for kitschy, escapist joy. Can it survive today's politics? Critic Linda Stassi snarked of the premiere, ABC must have gone to the well, or maybe that's the cesspool, and dredged up some of the lowest level celebrities available in the country today for this competition show. And But then the Post had to run a headline that said dancing is a swinging success because people were perfectly willing to watch Dancing with the Stars. But... They are very angry with Sean Spicer. On Monday's episode, Spicer donned a lime green shirt with ruffled sleeves and performed a salsa to the Spice Girls' Spice Up With Your Life with professional partner Lindsay Arnold. In a pre-recorded introduction, Spicer noted his time in the White House was tumultuous and that he finally felt it was time to have some fun. The judges were not impressed with Spicer's dance skills, awarded him 12 points out of 30, the second lowest score of the night. Some fans of the show complained loudly, as did high-profile ABC personnel, I deeply abhor this decision by the company I work for and truly love, tweeted Grey's Anatomy showrunner Krista Vernoff. I have a question. Is being on Dancing with the Stars like receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom? Is this something we have to take with a great level of seriousness? Oh my God, they rewarded Sean Spicer, one of history's greatest monsters, with a slot on Dancing with the Stars, dancing to the Spice Girls in a lime green shirt while playing the bongos. Does he deserve that kind of honor? Everybody, lighten up. Seriously, lighten up. Like, if if Robert Gibbs had shown up on Dancing with the Stars, would I have been like, oh my God, I can't believe they had Robert Gibbs on Dancing with the Stars. This is so stupid. Even the show's affable host, Tom Bergeron, recently released a statement suggesting he was disappointed by a choice as political as Spicer. Really? Really? It's, it's all so dumb. It's intensely dumb. But this is every aspect of American life now has to turn wildly political If you can't deal with a guy you didn't like as press secretary, who was not super great at being press secretary, dancing the salsa on TV, I suggest that you get a life because you don't have enough of one. All right. We'll be back here later today with two additional hours of content. Otherwise, we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Klavan Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Assistant Director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Karamina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production Assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey everybody, it's Andrew Claven,
1: host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the American Republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon is turned to blood. But on The Andrew Clavin Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Clavin Show and laugh your way through the apocalypse with me,
0: Andrew Click. Did you know that a baby's heart begins to beat at just three weeks? At five weeks, it can be heard on ultrasound. In some cases, the heartbeat can be the baby's only defense in the womb, which is where Preborn steps in. Preborn rescues 200 babies every day from abortion simply by providing moms with free ultrasounds that allow her to hear her child's heartbeat and see their perfectly formed body in the womb. By six weeks, the baby's eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to suck his or her thumb. Preborn needs our help to save these precious souls. For just 28 bucks, you could be the difference between the life or death of a baby. If you become a monthly sponsor, you'll receive stories and ultrasound pictures of the lives you helped to rescue. All gifts are tax-deductible. 100% of your gift donation goes toward saving babies. To so donate, dial pound 250, say keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or go to preborn.com slash ben. That's preborn.com slash Ben. Go check them out right now. Preborn.com slash Ben. It's the best thing you're going to do today or maybe ever. Dial pound 250, say keyword, baby, start saving children today.